This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the plays the thing here from the close reads podcast network we are going to be discussing shakespeare's entire canon one act at a time i'm david kern and i am joined by matt bianco and tim mcintosh tim mcintosh and matt bianco we're still working out who's going to be named first on the show who gets first billing but those are the people i'm joined by matt tim welcome to the plays the thing thanks for joining me you're welcome. We are here. <laughs> we are here <laughs> to discuss King Lear first. It's gonna be the first play we discuss here on on the place of thing. And for those who did not listen to the the tr- the podcast trailer thing that we put up, or just haven't heard us discussing it on other podcasts, we are going to be discussing one act for each episode. Thus, each play will take us five episodes. But then we're also going to do a Q and A episode. Uh, added on to it so we'll do six episodes over six weeks for each play we'll do about three plays and then we'll take a few weeks off so it'll be like a three little three play cycle where do the cues come from from the listeners how do the listeners give us cues they can do that by contacting us at closereadspods.com or by uh, emailing me at david at cerceinstitute.com or should they so desire, they can be on the Close Reads Podcast Network Facebook group and we they can post uh, their questions there on the Q&A thread for the King Lear conversation. Perfect, thanks. So we will be prepared for that. So as questions come in, feel free to send them to us over on one of those avenues. If you also uh, would like to, you can post a question on social media, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you like. You could do it on Instagram if you want and just use the hashtag, the plays the thing. And... Without the apostrophe, by the way, the place, the thing, um, and we will check those as well. So we'll be checking those throughout, um, throughout, you know, in between episodes as well, in case something comes up that can inform the conversation. So we're here to talk about Act One, first of all. Um, you guys both jumped at the opportunity to discuss King Lear. Jumped. We were, you did. You practically dove in. Dived. You practically dived in. Um, dove in. Dovin, that's the more Shakespearean way of saying it. I, believe. <laughs> I don't know. Please don't go there. Uh, so we were discussing, you know, we have on the Close Reads podcast network, in case you're not aware, we have a show that basically covers novels and short stories. Um, and then we also have some poetry things that are going to be happening. We've got some movie pods that we're launching, a lot of stuff that we'll be announcing over time. But as we were looking at all the different books that we're going to be covering, we were trying to figure out, well, who's going to. Show- Whoa, Sorry, what are you David. doing making tea? Sorry, David. I was I was finishing my breakfast and I just spilled a fork. 
it is it is 8 a.m where tim is right yes. now or something like that so we will we'll forgive that um you got up you got up relatively early to to be on here um but what was i saying we both jumped to be on later oh, yeah, so so we were trying to figure out who's going to be on all the different shows and when we mentioned that we were going to start place the thing with king lear one of his great uh dramas you both practically tumbled over each other to get on this show. The good thing is there's space enough for both of you. Why did you want to be on King Lear so much? Tim, are you ready to speak now? Or I am ready to speak now. Okay. Jump on, ju- jump on this. Why did you want to be on King Lear so badly? Because it's, it's always in my top three, or three of Shakespeare's plays. I think it might be his... You could make a case that it's his best play. Everyone knows um, Hamlet. Everyone knows Romeo and Juliet. Lear is a little less known because it's, I think maybe because it's harder to perform. It's denser and it is sad in a way. I think that Hamlet is not sad and maybe not even Romeo and Juliet is sad. It is profoundly sad. I think that's a little bit of an obstacle for people performing so it, but you, I so think but you it's like brilliant. That. Oh yeah, I do. I have to admit, I, I, I like it. Well, no, I don't like it. I mean, it's very, very hard for me to watch the end. Um, right, right. But I just think it's, it's... Tim and I often watch sad movies and cry together. So. Yeah. Thing. yeah. Yeah. So you just wanted to be able to kind of get on here and relive some of that, that uh, catharsis that you yes, experienced together while exactly watching performances. Yeah. Hey, Tim, um, do you have a Mount Rushmore of Shakespeare plays? Like, what are the four Shakespeare plays whose... Profiles are all carved out of Yeah, exactly. Um, I do. They are Hamlet, Lear, either Macbeth or Othello, and Coriolanus. So would you tragedies? Okay, so but do you put? You said either Macbeth or Othello. So do you? Does that mean that if you had to choose four, Coriolanus would get knocked off? No, Coriolanus is definitely. So really, it's. It's Lear, Hamlet, Coriolanus, and then one of the other two. Correct. That's right. Okay. What if right this second, if you had to choose, is it Othello or Macbeth? Macbeth. So if you and if you you're a theater guy, so for people who don't know Tim, listening to the plays, the thing, and you haven't listened to some of our other podcasts, Tim is a playwright and an actor and a director. Um, and so Tim, when it comes to performing, if you could be if you had the chance to yeah. perform as any character in one of those plays and you're doing it like in Stratford upon Avon and you're at the globe and you're going to perform in front of all the, in the greatest Shakespearean venue of all time. Uh-huh. What's, and you can choose any of those roles. You've been given that sort of that option. Which of these roles are you going to choose to perform? Coriolanus. Except wow. if I was, if I was, this really is a genuine life goal for says me. a lot about you i think <laughs> um a genuine life goal for me is to play lear because if you can play lear the actor who plays lear has to be have lived long enough to be old <laughs> yes you have to look like you're old enough to go senile but the actor actually has to be able to memorize all the lines and it is a bushel of lines hmm. and you have to be fit enough physically fit enough to actually be a pretty, I, I, I see him as being a very physically active character. That's something as we talk about this, and I'm going to go over to you, Matt, in just a second. 
as we talk about this play, I'd love it if you could kind of help us identify that physicality, like where that shows up and where you might see that being portrayed by a performer or, right. or laid out by a director. Yeah. So just help us see that as we're going through. Okay. Let's flip over to Matt now. So we'll do both those questions then. Well, I guess I asked him three questions, but the first question is, why did you jump at Lear? Why does this play mean so much to you that you'd want to spend this much time talking about it with us? Uh, and then tell us your Mount Rushmore. And then if you want to tell us which, which character you'd like to perform, you may as well. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I actually Tanya Hardinged Brian so that I could be the one on the show. He oh, was okay. trying to, and then I took a crowbar to his to his kneecap. Okay. Um, I, that's what just kind of a general yeah, so thing that happens less of a here. jump than, than, and more of a, more of a robot. violent takeover. That's right. Um, you have followed him or you him. <laughs> and I did it because I read, I read, uh, Lear a few years ago, uh, very quickly, just in one sitting over in the, in an evening. Oh, wow. And was, um, was very, moved by it, but didn't have any outlet for thinking about it further with, with others. So when it came up, I I just knew immediately this was, I needed to do this one so that I could read it again a little more slowly, a little more closely, but also have this outlet with you all yeah. um, to be able to discuss it. It, it. Particularly because of the question that arises about father, uh, father, daughter relationships, mm. or father, children, parent, child relationships. Mm. And, um, and, and wanting to, wanting to be able to think on those ideas further. So, so that was kind of the main, there were specific themes that you just felt like compelled yeah, to discuss that draws me to this text. Yes. Um, is it, is it one of your Mount Rushmore plays? It is. It is. What it, are the other? It is, especially now, have, you know, having read it a second time for this, um, and and I imagine will grow even stronger as we go through this. But my my Mount Rushmore is is it's a little more harmoniously balanced. Than <laughs> um, I, I include some comedies. Mine is uh, uh, my my tragedies would be Lear and Hamlet, and then my my comedies would be um, Taming of the Shrew much ado about nothing and the tempest which gives me five so either i need to raise a lot of taxes to <laughs> modify Mount rushmore or i need to have a sometimes this one sometimes so, that one it, and it's probably would be much ado and the tempest that i would go back and forth between right this second which one would you choose like i made tim choose between othello and Macbeth. yeah right now jerk um, <laughs> probably, probably much Universally about known. nothing because I've read that one most recently okay. of the two, okay. but whichever, like, like I, Tempest is on my schedule to read again soon. Mm. And that will probably it'll swap, it, it'll swap places. At that so point. have you ever, have you, have you ever felt a desire to perform Shakespeare at all? Yes. So which, which character from those plays, like having done whatever performance you've done before or having watched performances, seems like a character that you would most like to play. I, I performed Othello once Did and, you? and loved it. In um, high, the co college, high school? High school, yeah. What, what character were you? Othello. I almost said, what position were you? As if it was like yeah, baseball. <laughs> For a second, Catcher. I was, um, I was Othello. And in high school, that was cool because I got to call a girl a bad name and slap her. Mm. Um, the, uh, the, what character would I most want to play? Coriolanus? 
<laughs> no, Beatrice. Uh, no, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably, probably Benedict. Um, Benedict would be a fun character to play. Benedict, yeah. Benedict would be a blast, especially if you have a good Beatrice or Patricio. <laughs> <laughs> um. So before we dive, you know, right into Lear, I want to talk a little bit about Shakespearean, like the dramas. Um, I was going to say Shakespearean drama, but I'm, I mean that in a very specific way. Um, so Tim, you have all dramas on your list and Matt, you had two of them and you mentioned that you were, your list was more balanced, but you didn't, neither of you included a history, for example. So it's not truly balanced. <laughs> um, but aren't the histories all also either tragedies or comedies? Depends on who you talk to, I suppose. I mean, they have... <clears throat> those kinds of endings. Typically. Well, true. So it's like, it's like they're tragedies, but they have false staff in them. So they're so comedic that you sometimes forget it. That's, that's, <laughs> right. I mean, I'm exactly. Yeah, and I've been calling them dramas, but really what we should be calling them is tragedies. I don't know why I call them dramas. Let's talk about Shakespearean tragedies then. That's the better way. I don't, I just, I don't know why I said that because my, my mind is not working properly. What about the tragedies? A Shakespearean tragedy is when it works is so profoundly compelling. It can't be just that it ends in this tragic way. Uh -huh. uh, there's gotta be something more going on there. So I'd love to spend five minutes on like what makes a compelling Shakespearean tragedy so compelling. So I'd like to approach this in a very like kind of annoying way. Like I'd love to come up with three reasons just for the sake of structure and for the sake of, you know, ease. And, that, and, and for the sake of our lost tools. Yeah. Yeah. Say, well, right? it's just, it helps my brain. It helps us get to a point, right? Like we, it gives us a, a, a goal um, to actually finish something on the conversation and not be here doing this part of the conversation for 30 minutes. So I'm curious if let's get, if we can come up with three good reasons and we can argue about whether the reasons are good enough, but three, three really good compelling reasons why a Shakespearean tragedy when done right. The best Shakespearean tragedies are so compelling for these three reasons. Tim, do you, can you throw one out first? Can I, I, I can throw, I would love to throw two out because I think these two kind of go together. Okay. That's then good because we'll, I only have one. Okay. So. We'll see what, and then we'll see if we have to fight about anything here. Um, the, I'll start at the end. A character that you love dies and dies in a very, very unjust manner. So that would be one for me. And it just mm. hurts. It really hurts. Um, I mean, Desdemona in Othello is a great example. She's, I don't know, you just can't help but um, have deep affection and pity for her, and she dies in the most unjust manner. Uh, mm. I think now kind of combined with that is the reason for the wrongdoing could very easily have been avoided, but yet... Um, the failure of the character is something that at least for me is so identifiable. So just to stick with Othello, it's just insane jealousy. He thinks that his wife Desdemona is cheating on him. Iago gives him all sorts of false evidence that she is. Of course she's not. And Othello just allows himself to be taken into in by the green eyed monster. And I mean, <sighs> I just think that Shakespeare portrays Othello in a way that I just can see myself going into that. If there's an mm. Iago in my life, I can so huh. easily say, 
oh, I would just succumb to these little bits of supposed um, infidelity by Desdemona. So, so there's something universal about the way he portrays the, these failures that that we can all see ourselves in the character. Yeah. Hmm. And if they would just do differently, if they would just take their eyes off, if Otho would just take his eyes off jealousy, Desdemona would not suffer the fate that she suffers. So then would you also say then that what makes one of the part of the tragedy compelling is that there is a clear path that, that any reader can, well, any reader who's paying attention can see as an alternative option that would avoid the tragedy yes, yes. and that we can see it coming. What? We can help them avoid it. And we it's can true, see that they should avoid it. Okay. Yeah. Mostly maybe. Okay. Well, let's give you, I think Hamlet might be an example, but okay. Yeah. That's, that's mine. So yeah. Well, Hamlet is a, maybe that's why it's an, like it. an exception. It's a failure as a work. <laughs> okay. So you said, uh, the character and then the tragic ending could have been avoided essentially. Yeah. So you love the character, but they have a tragic ending and that tragic ending could have been avoided. Was yeah. that one or was that two? That was two. Okay. Matt, what's yours? Uh, so my third one is, or mine, which will be the third one relates to your second one, Tim, which is that I think that there's always a character or in my experience, I, I'm not, I haven't read all of them, but you think there's always a character that, and sometimes it's very minor and it's very subtle, but there's always a character that represents that path, that the positive path, the, the positive good path? path to that would have, have avoided the tragedy that, um, that the audience can, if, if you can see, if you can find that character, cause like I said, sometimes, sometimes she's subtle, um, that the, that the audience can then follow. I mean, ha- that, that can, that can be to the audience, of, of the virtue to, to imitate rather than the negative, the tragic, okay. tragic figure that you can't really imitate him because then you also would die. Right. <laughs> um, right. But the, this other character you can look to as a, as a, as an embodiment of a virtue to imitate. Mm. Tim, what do you think of that? You're on mute. <laughs> I think, I think that's, I was just, as Matt was saying that, I was coming through the tragedies and thinking about who that character was. And I think for the most part, I could come up with, maybe not for Coriolanus. I was having a hard time with Coriolanus, but all of the other tragedies, I think maybe with the exception of Hamlet also, I could think of someone who showed the virtuous path. Are you thinking of Horatio, Matt? Probably. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea, it's kind of like the idea of a foil, right? Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes um, that character is very subtle. Like I, I would consider Julius Caesar a tragedy, even though it's a history, but just because of how it ends. Right. I would consider a tragedy, but I think there is a character in there who does this for us. And she, and she's very subtle. There might be two actually, but it's the wives, hmm. especially Brutus's wife. Hmm. Portia. Um, but possibly also one of, uh, Calpurnia. One of the things that, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, and I think they both like, like they both seem to indicate that like, like Portia, Portia seems to say, Portia seems to know that if Brutus would just tell her what's going on, he would realize that it's absurd. Mm. That what he's about to do is absurd, mm. but mm. he won't say it to her, won't express it to her. So he's, he's only ever thinking and speaking about it in, in this echo chamber that is the conspirators. Mm. One of the things that I love that you guys are pointing out is, is the way Shakespeare uses these, these pairs, these relationships to create a drama. 
So like you've got the the foil that represents the good path. And then you've also, in many cases, you have like the other the character that represents the bad path. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that, you'll see that we're going to see that in Lear. Um, well, maybe not that specifically, but we're seeing the way he uses these pairs of characters all the time um, to, to, to move the drama forward. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's the father and the child. The father and the daughter, the father and the son in Lear. Um, it could be, you know, it could be two sets of even in the comedies we see it. You know, you see Beatrice and Benedict, Claudius and Hero. Right. Um, you'll see you see it in As You Like It. Um, and it's not just that he's pairing them off for the sake of um, balance, mere dramatic effect or dramatic right. structure. It, it's generally it it genuinely creates. Um, the drama, the drama, and I mean that in a different way. Like the, 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 it creates the stakes, if you will. You see it in, um, not not to go too far astray, but you see it in in comedies on television too. Mm-hmm. Like you'll see, you know, one set of characters will be wrestling through some question or some decision, and then this, there's another set of characters. Um, like sometimes, if it's a family comedy, there'll be like the parents, yeah, and then the kids, right, and they're yeah. both wrestling with the same exact, yeah, or say a same kind of question uh and then you know resolving it Hmm. and when you have so you mentioned resolution it seems like one of the hardest things or one of the things that leads to the tragedy or the comedy you know the endings that correspond to those things is that idea of resolution it's either how are these characters going to resolve the tensions in their relationship Uh or how are those tensions in their relationship going to destroy them um, and I think that we're going to end up seeing that in Lear as well. Would you agree with that sort of, with that idea, Tim? That, that, that one of the things that determines whether it's a comedy or, or a tragedy in some ways is like, is that either the tensions between the characters are resolved or that they're just, the, the, and then bring them together or the tensions in the relationship destroy them as people. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the single demarcation of what is a, um, comedy in Shakespeare's plays is whether or not there's a marriage or marriages at the end. And that's not just, um, that's true. I mean, the only one that's a little bit hard to categorize that way is measure for measure. There's marriages at the end, but it's the main character, Isabella, who strangely does not really give a reply to, I think the Duke is the name of that man who's her suitor. All of the other comedies. Well, should have had a real name. Yeah, right. Bob. Um, all the other comedies uh, end in a marriage or marriages. Hmm. Well, let's dive in straight away then. Straight away from here, not from the beginning of this podcast, into King Lear. And I wanted to make a quick note because we got some questions offline. Well, I guess actually online off the show about the text. Um and the version that Matt and I are using is a is the recent version that Pelican produced. Pelican Shakespeare. It's it's got a it kind of looks like a ticket sort of um, a ticket stub, I guess. And it's got it's black with a King Lear's head made to look like a castle with a storm, and he's got a beard and all that kind of stuff. It's a cool illustration. Tim, which one are you using? You're using an online version. No, I did for a little bit, but I went back to a but complete Pelican Shakespeare. And it looks okay. like I'm using the same version that you guys are using, which is a combination of the Cordo and the Folio. Right. So there's a note on the text in this book, and it notes that King Lear has come down to us in two uh, pretty different ver- versions. The Cordo, which was published in 1608, and a text from the first folio pres- 
uh, printed in 1623. Um, and the folio, it says, has 115 lines not in the quarto. Well, the quarto has 285 lines, including a whole scene and a large part of another not in the folio. And then there are also other smaller variations, it says, that include, that are, um, you know, um, affecting individual words, speak designations, lineation, and so forth. So I'm just going to read this quick line here. It is generally, though not universally, agreed now that the quarto represents a version of the heavily corrected and revised manuscript that came from Shakespeare's hand, and that the folio represents a later performing version of the play. The implication is that the quarto represents the play before it was performed, the play as it went to the acting company to be transcribed and turned into a performing text, and that the folio version represents the performing text, though not necessarily the only version the company had performed in the years between 1605 and 1623. Um, What we have in our volumes, and which seems from what little research I did that that I can tell, so it's not exhaustive, but what little research I did, um, confirms what this says here about this text, that the play as presented in this volume is the traditional conflated text. Um, And someone prepared it specifically for the Pelican series. And it seems to have... um, so it includes both and it puts passages found only in the quarto text in Roman brackets is what they're called. Um, So there is a companion volume where you can see them as the two different texts, but if you can find the conflated one, that's the one we're going to be using. Um, So we're not going to, I mean, where we remember to or where we can, we'll, we'll delineate that we're noting that it's the quarto text or the folio text, but um, just wanted to make a note about that because there were some questions. So if you're really into Shakespeare scholarship, you can dive into this a little bit more deeply. Um, the folio, the history of the folios and all the different texts is pretty interesting. And the way I think about it is like, you'll get a screenplay, say for a movie, this is very common now. And someone writes the original screenplay, but then when you go to shoot it and you start thinking about how the scenes are actually blocked and acted out, you're like, well, that's not going to work. So we need to, adjust this slightly or rewrite some scenes. And it seems to me that that's basically what they're doing. Would you say that's true, Tim? Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy. Okay. All right. Well, so with that out of the way, then let's, let's talk King Lear. Um, basically in this first act, should we summarize it in very quickly? Very quickly. Very quickly. So, so Lear is, I'll just say, I'll just start. You guys can add in. It starts with um, Lear basically having to decide how he's going to divide his kingdom. So he asks his daughters to tell him why, how much they love him. And the right answer is going to get the biggest part of the kingdom. Two of his daughters, Goneril and Regan, answer in a way that satisfies him. Cordelia does not. She essentially gets banished. The king of France has mercy on her and decides that he will marry her. While, without a dowry. Without a dowry. While the um, Duke of Burgundy decides that's not for him. And then we're also introduced to um, Kent, who... The, tries to defend Cordelia and in so doing gets sent off by Lear who gets angry at him. He then event, comes back a little later in disguise and s- tries to become a servant to the king. And then we also have um, this Earl of Gloucester who has two sons named Edgar and Edmund who um, Edmund is uh, Earl, the Earl of Gloucester's bastard, bastard son and is intent on causing some problems it seems. Um, anything else we need to add to just our brief summary? <laughs> I mean, it's admittedly extremely brief. Um, no, we're going to talk good, about though. the specific scenes um, here in a minute. We we get introduced to a fool, yeah, um, who is at Lear's side and, as always, is spewing wisdom that they can't rec- Lear can't recognize. Um, is that enough for us to dive in? Yeah, I think so. 
I think. Okay. So one of my questions is in act one, scene one, it begins with this little like 35 line prologue type thing. And I'm wondering why it even begins with that. Like why couldn't, why didn't Shakespeare just start with, uh, you know, Lear at line 36 where he starts talking, he, he gives this, yeah. you know, meantime, we shall express our darker purpose. Give me the map. Know that we have divided in three our kingdom. And then he tries to figure out how to do it. But before that we get Kent and Gloucester and Gloucester's, um, son Edmund we get them having this little discussion ahead of time Kent begins with I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall so talking about who he likes the most why does he begin with this why 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 this little prologue type thing going on here I think it's a setup for a huge dramatic moment which is Lear's announcement about how he's going to divide the kingdom which to a person reading Shakespeare to a person seeing Shakespeare performed, um, passing along the rights to rule a kingdom is this potentially calamitous event as a potential war. I mean, I think living in the United States, one of the incredible benefits of living in the United States is we've never had an armed coup in our history. We've had plenty of conflict and nasty conflict, but the exchange of power has, this is incredible in world history, always been a peaceful exchange of power. That is not the norm in human history by a long shot. And so even though, so when Gloucester and Kent are having this discussion, Hey, Lear is going to now divide the kingdom. I think for someone seeing this, it's fraught with potential peril. So, so it's introducing, so he's just not beating around the bush to get to the conflict. He's trying to reveal why this, why what Lear is about to do is, is problematic. Well, I don't even know that it's, he's revealing why it's problematic. I think he's just, he is, I think Shakespeare is opening the door for the possibility of massive, massive calamity, which is the case anytime a kingdom exchanges hands. And thus for an audience, this is a tremendously dramatic moment. What's he going to do? How is he going to do it? What the, how the 30, the first 35 lines though, aren't because we don't know that he's going to do that until line 36, right? 37. So well, I guess it, in line first 35 lines are like this. Um, oh no, you're right. I'm sorry. Line three, line three and says, four. Yeah. Right. That's right. Okay. It, um, Forgive me. Yeah. But. So is, is he sort of saying there, they're kind of talking about the Dukes, right? So it sort of seems like, oh, he's going to divide the kingdom between one of these two Dukes. Who does he like the best? Yeah. Or three Dukes or whatever. But then it, but then he ends up coming out and talking to his daughters. So it seems like the expectation of Kenton Gluster is, oh, he's going to have to decide between these, his daughter's husbands. Yeah. But then he comes out and I imagine he kind of surprising everyone. And he says, actually, it's going to come down to which of my daughters answers my somewhat petty question the best. Now, see, I, I interpreted that very first line from Kent. I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall. I thought that was sort of an indirect way of saying he's going to give more land to Cornwall's wife because he likes the way that she married a little bit better than Albany. I thought the king had more. So we there's a little note here and... I, for one, I'm not ashamed to use notes. Um, I thought the king had more, so we put the note in, preferred the Duke of Albany than Cornwall. 
I could, yeah, I can see how you, I could see that reading, I suppose. Oh, I said, no, I said it incorrectly than David. I'm sorry. Right, right. Had more affected the Duke of Albany. He preferred the Duke of Albany. I switched to say Cornwall. That Matt, was Matt, what do you think of that reading? Well, that's, I mean, as far as, like, I read it the same way that Noah describes it, as far as the thing, as far as which one was preferred. Um, it's, the the opening scenes of Shakespeare plays always fascinate me because they 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 always seem to be some sort of embodiment or well they always seem to be kind of bizarre strange unrelated um with, with perhaps the exception of macbeth and uh and then and then it's like on a on a second third fourth fifth reading where you start realizing how closely related it is or or it reveals its secrets as it were to how it relates to the rest of the play mm. um so with with this one then you know on the first reading second reading it's it's just, it's an interesting conversation that you're coming in on where they're they're foreshadowing or not foreshadowing but they're talking about what's about to happen yeah um but it's interesting that the whole thing seems there's there seems to be this conversation back and forth uh first about which one he likes better of the dukes but then there's this immediate kind of or this abrupt interruption where they start talking about Gloucester's son or his sons but then Gloucester starts talking about which of the sons he likes better or, or that he doesn't, right? He, mm. he, one his is own, not dearer yeah. than the other yeah. in his account. Um, even though one is older, one is younger, one is lawful, one is unlawful. Um, he doesn't hold one dearer than the other. So there's this conversation about liking people more or less, not liking people more or less, being liked by people more or less, not being liked mm. by people more or less. And then, and then Lear comes in and says, and Kent even says, I must love you more. I must, I got to get to know you more and love you. It's interesting. Oh yeah. About it's a very, the sun, very, yeah. very specific line. <laughs> yeah. And then Lear comes in and says, I'm going to divide my king kingdom and it's going to be based on who loves me more. Mm. After we just had, you know, this, heard this conversation about the, you know, Gloucester and his sons and not loving one more than the other. And you know, what's interesting. I love, okay. So, Edmund says, my service is to your lordship. Kent then, I must love you and sue to know you better. Um, and then Edmund, sir, I shall study deserving. So in other words, I shall undertake to deserve it. Yeah. And so I, I love this concept that, that Edmund saying, Kent saying, I, should, I need to get to know you. I need to, to love you more. And then he's saying, okay, then I'm going to work, try to figure out how to deserve that love. Hmm. So then you get introduced, not just the concept of who do I love more and who do I love less, but who deserves to be loved more and who deserves to be loved less. Hmm. Yeah. It's like, I don't know that maybe it's not that much different, but it seems like there's a subtle thematic variation there. Interesting that it's Edmund too. That's right. That's but, yeah. The bastard. So, uh, yeah. So wise. So then Lear comes out and David, before uh, you go on, yeah. can I say something? Yeah. Because Please, this, yeah. I just feel like I need to say this because this is going to be a theme when I talk about Shakespeare. So before Kent's opening line, my text has one, one. Enter King Gloucester and Bastard Edmund. So that's the stage direction. Enter, enter Kent or King. Uh, mine says Kent. Yeah, yeah. I, King I, 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 I thought you enter. said King. Yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe I did. I meant to say Kent. Um, yeah. So those are those are the stage directions. I just I think it's really fun and interesting to 
think, especially once you've gone through the text one time, to think about it in terms of how a director would think about those sorts of stage directions, because the director has got enough liberty that he does not have to have those three characters all entering side by side from the same entrance at the same time by a long shot that it's probably very rarely performed exactly that way. So yeah, yeah. if you're a director, how might you stage that instead? So what I would yeah. do, knowing what I know about Kent, the King's top advisor and, you know, one of his most loyal subjects, I mean, the man really loves Lear. I hmm. might have Gloucester and Edmund standing, you know, like downstage left already on the stage and have Kent come out of the same entrance that Lear is about to come out of, because right then you're saying to the audience something about Kent. He knows something that Gloucester does not yet know, or maybe Gloucester does know it, but he's revealing huh. information that he presumably got from the King. And that says a lot about who Kent is. He's a, he's a trusted yeah. advisor. He gets the information before other people do. So as people go, when we get to new entrances and exits, I think it might be fun for people to, to kind of stop and imagine, okay, how would I set this scene up if I'm the director? What sort of, um, what sort of cues for entrances, especially am I going to use to show that the show, the relationships that are on the stage, where am I going to put people? What entrances are they going to yeah. come from? Yeah. Do you, so I think we've, I think we may have talked about this previously, but it's this, that opening feels to me a lot like it's, you're kind of in the middle of something. Yes. Definitely. Like they're already in the middle of a conversation. So could you have them kind of be walking on together? You could have them in the, like, so, at, you know, maybe the first line is they're not quite to the center of the stage yet. And then as they're going, maybe they're, could, I mean, could the, to where they're kind of settling into the, they're talking as they're settling into their spots. Yeah, the rest of the absolutely. And I mean, obviously the director has a tremendous amount of liberality given to him in Shakespeare's plays because Shakespeare uses so few stage directions. Often his stage directions are within the dialogue. And that's another thing that we can look oh, for. Right, yeah. You know, yeah. a character will say, um, you know, I bid you well long before the character actually exits. So it's kind of a signal maybe to the director. Oh, it's time for this character to start moving off stage. Hmm. Yeah. And that's where um, I've always found that the more I can sense that that movement of the in the in the words in the language, the play in a way feels less static to me. Mm -hmm. like it helps because it helps my imagination be moving. Me too. It's not just people. It's you know, like when I think about a novel, there's usually so much description that the scene gets set for me. Yeah. And here, there's so much left up to the director, and that's why Shakespeare you know, unlike other playwrights can be adapt, can be potentially adapted in modern times just as easily as it could in medieval ages or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much freedom granted. And so sometimes it can feel like in my mind, I'm just seeing three people standing there talking to each other. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But the more I can visualize the movement and what's going on, the more, the less static, the more, uh, the more um, alive everything comes to me. So please keep pointing stuff like that out to us. One bad thing that happens when you start reading this way, David, is that when you see an actual performance, you'll see the director kind of behind the scenes. You'll disagree. <laughs> oh my goodness. Just a little one. I, I saw Lear about two weeks ago, an outdoor performance. I won't mention where, cause I'm going to be critical. 
Um, <laughs> Lear, when he steps on Somewhere stage, west of the Mississippi, <laughs> right? When Lear steps on stage, he is. I think it's absolutely clear from a director's point of view. He is the central subject of the scene. He's the one that's making the decisions. He's driving decisions. Everyone is re- reacting to his words. He's not as much reacting to their words. And his words are the law. So when, as we're about to talk about, when he and Cordelia start to have their fight, the director in the play that I saw had Lear, had Cordelia standing still and Lear dancing all around her, like pleading with her, chiding her. And I thought, boy, that, that choice from the director really reduces the authority of Lear because it makes the character of Lear appear to be the one who is um, appealing rather so, than Cordelia. And you could, I could understand you can make an argument, but Cordelia is strong in character and Lear is unhinged in character. And I could, I could understand that. I, I would not, I don't think that would be a great choice though, because we really need to see the authority and the power of Lear and Lear's words really strongly in that opening, in this opening scene. And and yeah, and yet one of the things that fascinates me about Shakespeare, and as you pointed out, the, the, the lack of stage direction uh, um, in the text, and then, and then the kind of the freedom that the, that different directors have and different actors have is that it's possible to, to present Lear or, or any of the characters, Cordelia, anybody from different perspectives um, and kind of lead us to think through what, what is, what is, what do I, what do I learn from this? Or what am I, what do I think about this story? You know, what's happening in this story? If I, if I read it or view it as Lear being this kind of almost childlike, uh-huh. desperate for attention type character. Uh-huh. And then, but then, but then what happens, how is it different when I read it again or watch it again? And Lear is this kind of commanding, um, demanding, you know, give me what I want, tell me what I want to hear uh-huh. or else kind of character. And I think that, I think, and I, I'm, I, I'm sure we're, we're coming here. So I, I guess I don't know to jump ahead too much, but even with, um, with Cordelia, right? Like the way she responds, there's different ways to read her character. Um, that, that kind of changed the tenor of the, of the story that I think, I think it, I think it's interesting. Like, like, you know, when people talk about what, what's better, the book or the movie. And one of the things that people will say is, you know, when I read the book, I, I'm imagining what the world looks like that I'm, that I'm in, yeah. encountering. But when I watch the movie, I have to see what somebody else thinks about it. And, and I get that, but, but, but like this conversation here where there's the three of us, like we're doing this because, and people are, are people are listening to these podcasts because they want to hear how David's imagination yeah. has encountered the world and how Tim's imagination has encountered the world. And, and, you know, Heidi's Jonathan's Angelina's and mine now, uh, how our imaginations are encountering the world. Um, and so I, I like that they do that, even though, of course, I'm going to say, well, I like you did, that way. Like you did, I wouldn't do it that way, but it's still fascinating yeah. <laughs> what happens uh-huh. when somebody does you know and the more we love something the more we feel strongly about it right? absolutely like right about the lord of the rings like there's a lot of perfectly i mean there's some things that are maybe indefensible but there are plenty of defensible choices that they make that people in the lord of the rings movies 
that people just can't stand, right? Yeah. Like the way he blocks mm-hmm. something or whatever, mm-hmm. how, you know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. We, that's not for this show, but. Hey, before we go on, I mean, this might be a nice transition. Matt, before we started recording today, you had mentioned the way that you kind of imagined Cordelia when you read her the first time. Remember this conversation? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to yeah. hear you talk about how you read Cordelia and if you, you know, upon encountering the play again, if you still read her that way, or if you read her a different way. Well, this is a good segue to the, cause this next bit of scene one has is Cordelia and Lear kind of going at odds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so in this scene, of course, Lear says he's going to divide the kingdom and he asks his daughters to say how much they love him. Whoever loves him the most gets the largest share. Goneril says how much she loves him. Reagan says how much she loves him. And that it's the same as Goneril, except with this mistake that Goneril made. And then she corrects it, right? And then Cordelia says uh, that there's nothing she can say. And, and basically justifies it by saying two things, I think. One, that she can't heave her heart into her mouth mm. and, and turn her emotions into words. But also there's, there's an amount of love and duty that's appropriate to a father from his daughter and that she's not going to go beyond that. And she thinks that her sisters have. Um, and so she can't love him as much as he seems to be wanting. And so the first two times now that I've read it, both times I've read Cordelia as being this kind of almost stoic, duty-bound, mm-hmm. um, you know, a strong woman who has a sense of duty and honor and that she's just telling her father how it is. And she's not going to give and budge either way. But when we were having this conversation earlier off the air, the, uh, the, I, it, it occurred to me that you could also read her. And I think you confirmed that you've seen her play this yeah. way, that you could read her as actually feeling a little bit more, um, um, saddened by that. Like, like, she, like there's a sense of duty that a, a sense of appropriateness, propriety that she's not going to over, step but she's she's saddened by that 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 she can't or that there's this need there's even a need to and so she it's almost like an a a, a pitiful appeal to a, a pitiful appeal unhappy that i am i cannot heave my heart into my mouth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i love your majesty according to my bond no more no less and you could almost hear her in a kind of um weeping type tone or 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 a, a, a tone of great sadness there rather than a stoic. Yes. I cannot heave my heart into yes. my mouth. You're and asking I found, me to do something I ought not do. You know? And I found myself reading it as if she's kind of like uh, more of a spitfire. Like, I don't have, I don't have time for this nonsense type thing. I don't know why that, yeah, I don't know yeah. why I read that in my first, my first, my, like especially those first few readings when she's kind of those first few lines rather when she's sort of talking to herself, like she's being, I almost read it as if she's being sort of, sort of sarcastic and, thinks this whole thing is sort of nonsense. Mm-hmm. But so what I'm wondering is like, does, is there, do you guys think that there is a way to read Cordelia that one of these is, is right. One of them is wrong or that um, it says more about us and how we read her. I think it says more about us that, I mean, my, yeah, my, my gut instinct is that, is that we interpret her a certain way and then it, and then it communicates something about the way we think about that kind of a situation or that kind of 
a person, especially if it's a character where we can identify ourselves with that person. Or the kind of woman that appeals to us. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, that's, that's what I typically think that is, is typically what happens. Like when Hamlet says, you know, the, the, um, the play holds a, holds a mirror up to, up to our nature that, um, that in a sense, the play is a mirror to my own personal nature, right. And, or to my, my person and that it's communicating something about me. Um, so if I see, if I see, you know, Hamlet as a certain type of person, it might be communicating something about, about what I am, mm. the kind of person I am. Do, well, I guess the great thing about this is part of the fun of the reading experience is saying, this is my instinct of what's happening here. Yeah. And now we keep reading and we test it against, hey, what comes Absolutely. next? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can keep going back and reading it and you can read it in the play in so many different uh, voices even. And that's why so many different performances can all ring so so true. I mean, some of them probably ring very hollow, um, but some of but there's many performances of many great characters that are that can be slightly or significantly different that can still um, feel like they're capturing what he's going for, which is so fascinating. And, yeah. Matt, there's something else that you said that ties in with what David just said um, before we did this recording about kind of the relationship of uh, the Christian to the scriptures, like. Do you remember this, the kind of like playfulness or the freedom that is kind of within the, oh, word, yeah. the scripture? Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. I really appreciated what you had to say. Yeah, I don't remember where where I, I got this from, but but it was one of those situations where like earlier in my life where I was, I was really struggling with, you know, I need to know what God's will is if God wants me to take this job or if he wants me to move here or if he yeah. wants me to do this thing. And and, and and as if as if taking a job in in whatever New York City uh, was somehow well maybe New York City is a bad example if as if taking a job in you know somewhere in you know some some city in North Carolina would be a sin and like like I was afraid of it in that way um, and then and then I, I read or I heard somewhere that that with things like that, like it's almost, it's almost better to imagine life as kind of like you're on a playground. Yeah. There's this fence around the playground and that fence really represents, you know, God's law as far as like to, to cross the fences when you're actually breaking one of God's laws and sinning. But, but there, but there are all these, all these pieces of playground equipment inside the fence that you're not sinning. You're not sinning if you choose the monkey bars over the, over the slide or the swings. Mm. Um, and, and, and in fact, in insofar as you know we understand god as as father it's almost as like it's almost like god as father is watching to see which his child will choose like what is it that you know that you love do you love the monkey bars or do you love the swing <laughs> and and there's this this sense of joy even that he that he gets when he sees what we choose like when we take our little kid to the store and we you know put him in front of a shelf and say you know which piece of candy do you want or which toy do you want and then yeah. and then the joy that we get in seeing him pick that thing like mm-hmm. oh he like he loves this thing right yeah. we learn something about him in that moment um and I, and I wonder if it's not like you're going to put two pieces, two toys in front of them. And then if they choose the one that you don't like, then right. you're going to like, be like, right. no, you can't have that. Or right. when we go home, I'm going to toss that in the trash and you're going to go in timeout. Yeah. Cause you picked the wrong thing. Yeah. You picked you the wrong the toy I was wanting you to pick. Yeah. 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 It's like that. And so, so I was wondering if Shakespeare 
writes in such a way, and and, and part of my reason for thinking this is the lack of of stage direction. Um, it writes in such a way that it's almost it's almost like he wrote the play, then he wants to sit back and watch and see how directors and actors <laughs> will play it mm-hmm. out, like. Are you going to play Cordelia as this kind of stoic figure or this sad figure or this snarky figure? You know, Well, that comes back to the two texts, though, doesn't it? Like he wrote the first one and then there's another one that seems to have been adjusted as they are performing it. Oh, right. So it's right. like he brought it to them and he saw the choices they were making and the, the choices that the, the demands of the stage necessitated. Yeah. yeah. He adjusted it. And like, it seems like that was probably that's part of that process is probably very enjoyable for him mm-hmm. to see to see the way the performers are interacting with it and making choices and how the audience is responding to different things. And you, you, I think you've told me too, Tim, that you've had that in your own, in the plays you've written. Oh, right, all the time. You've had it make changes because the actors show you something. All the time. By, by their choice. Yeah, amazing. Sometimes I think about Shakespeare. I think any one of these plays that we've kind of mentioned in our Mount Rushmore, if he had just written one of these, I think we'd probably know his name. Maybe probably know his name because they are just <laughs> works of a transcendent genius. They're absolutely superb. Um, like Marlo, right? We know the main, the, the exactly primary. right. Yeah. Right. Cause it's just a superb work. Um, but sometimes I think about, Oh my gosh, was he superhuman? Because we don't just have one. We have 37, 38, depending. That's on why there's an authorship it. debate. <laughs> right. It seems unbelievable, but I, my, I do believe in a single authorship. A man named William Shakespeare wrote all of these plays. And I think that part of the reason that they are so powerful is because he's working with a troupe, an ensemble of what were probably the greatest actors in the world. I mean, the best theater scene, I think in Europe at the time kind of widely acknowledged to be yeah. London. So he has these, these characters, these, these actors. Um, there's a man named Kent who plays all of the clown roles in Shakespeare's scenes. And he's just heralded as, you know, like one of the great clowns in acting history. Um, so he has these wonderful actors. And I think that what he gave them, the texts that he gave them were exemplary but I think that they probably moved to another level because he's working with these outstanding actors who know how to make a play come alive. And my hunch is it was more of a collaborative process than we typically give Shakespeare credit for. Mm -hmm. And he was an actor, of course, we we all know. Um, I don't know that we know what, we probably do know what um, role he played in this play. Uh, He played the ghost the ghost's voice in Hamlet, apparently. So he's an actor also. And so he knows not just the craft of writing, but the craft of performance. That would be very interesting if someone wrote a paper on the characters that Shakespeare played and what that means about how he might've thought about the the plays. There's a book called The Best Actors in the World, which is basically just an empirical study based on, you know, posters and playbills about who they think played these various roles. And the, the author, it's, it's a little bit of a dry book. It's an academic book for people other than me. Um, but he submits, I think that Shakespeare played this role in this play, this role in this play. Huh. Huh. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this, this scene here. We've got a little bit of time left, probably. Um, scene one's quite long. So I think it's worth the, a lot of the focus here in this conversation. Um, 
why should well, what do you make of this question Lear asked them like what does it tell us about Lear himself that he seems to change the plan on his advisors and decides to divide his kingdom up based on uh, how his daughters respond to the question essentially the question is how much do you love me um what do we i mean what do we know about what can we learn about Lear by the by this question and i mean heck, should he have asked this question which one of you loved me best? Yeah, I mean, no. It seems like so. It's so right off the okay. So the answer seems obvious, right? This is like a this is a crazy way to divide up the kingdom. Matt, do you agree that it's that it's nonsense? <laughs> well, I, um, I want to hear I want to hear Tim Tim explain his no because I don't. My answer is also no, but I think it's it's a softer no. It's not as obvious. <laughs> so I want to I want to hear Tim. Tim's was almost like like mocking the question, right? Like, right. No, and you're an idiot if you think otherwise. <laughs> and I want to be the idiot today. So, <laughs> well, okay. Two things are going on. One of them is a procedural question of governance: mm-hmm. who is going to get the kingdom, and how, and how much of the kingdom they're going to get. And there's the other question, which is the question of relationship, familial love, et cetera, et cetera. And they're mashed together, which is part of the reason this play is going to be so great is because he's mashing these two things together and you can't yeah. separate the two. I was thinking about how basically the question, like it seems like at the outset that like Henry V or something, it's going to be a play of political intrigue, right? Possible political intrigue. Yeah. And then within like yeah. 50 lines, it's actually a family drama. <laughs> yeah, right. And I mean, I think this is why it's so intriguing because you know it's never as simple as, okay, is it going to be Goneril? Is it going to be Reagan? Is it going to be Cordelia? Well, all three are up for grabs. And how do we, how does Lear determine the question? By trying to determine which one of them loves him the best. So I think it's crazy, not from the procedural governance point of view, but from the familial love point of view, just because I know that parents are in their heart of hearts. They don't like to admit it, but they often have a favorite child. Lear very clearly has a favorite child of these three, and it's Cordelia. He says so. His advisors say so. The thing that's crazy to me is that I think there's kind of like a recognized parental... um, Oh, gosh, how do I say it? Silence about articulating who the favorite child is because you, you love your children. A parent loves his children and um, to make them play favorites is to breed seeds of catastrophe through jealousy and rivalry among your kids. So I think it's crazy because Lear is violating that kind of parental rule and that's bad enough, but the stakes at which he violates it are the ruling of an entire kingdom. So that strikes me as it's not madness like crazy, it's just it's beyond unwise. Hmm. Matt. Yeah, I think I think that I mean I, I agree with Tim. Um I, wholeheartedly, actually, in 
And especially with regards to the appropriateness or the propriety of, of what he's doing and the way he's doing it, especially with regards to the daughters, the, the filial aspect of it. Um, I think though, I don't think, let me see, I'll just figure out how to say this. I think that, I think that what he's doing is inappropriate, but I think that what he's doing is, I, I, it's, I'm sympathetic to it. Um, I, like it's you, you can, you can recognize the humanity in it. Yeah. Yes. I, I recognize the humanity in it. And, and I, th- I don't think that we're supposed to believe that King Lear is a bad person or maybe there's a better adjective to use there. I don't think we're supposed to think lesser, less of him at all because he does this because he does this. Um, I, I don't, I, I think that I think that King Lear is a good king, has been, is, and would be, um, will be, might be, um, depending on your degree of spoiler, <laughs> right? But, but but there is a, a moment here where I think we're supposed to pause at that. We're supposed to take pause at what just happened. Um. But I don't know that I don't know that we're supposed to think this guy is an idiot or this guy is off his rocker um, and he just made a colossal mistake, even though I think he did. But I, I don't think it's supposed to I don't you know, Aristotle says one one sparrow does not a, a summer make. Um, I, I think this 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 kind of small sequence of events, brief, brief sequence of events that we're going to encounter for the next few acts is not supposed to overwrite the overall character of the man. It's just a, it's a, so you don't so you, so we're not supposed to look down. We're not supposed to look at him as like some kind of morally corrupt right. person he make, but he's making an unwise decision. Right. He's, he's giving into some human like, things that Kings ought to an instinct into. Yeah. Yeah. But what about this idea? So his first line is, uh, meantime, we shall express our darker purpose. And I can't get past that line. It's just so, like, I, I mean, the note says here, it means secret plan, right? But like, why didn't Shakespeare just say, I mean, certainly poetic reasons, but meantime, we shall express our darker purpose. And there's something um, uh, mysterious about that. Something feels like he is admitting to the audience or to himself um, like I, you could almost, I could almost see that line being sort of played where he's just saying that line to himself. And then he turns to his people and says, give me the map there. Uh, just a, a quick side note. Um, notice he, he's just kicked Gloucester out of the room at this moment. Mm. Like, like yeah. to, to Tim's point earlier about Kent being the one that has all the knowledge that knows things before everybody else does that he's the main advisor and he and Gloucester are speaking. And then the first thing that Lear says to Gloucester is, Hey, go, go attend to go wait on those guys out there. Mm-hmm. Go make sure, you know, go show them some hospitality. Make sure you take your kids. This meeting. Yeah. And then the kid, yeah. You, and take your, your rotten son with you. Um, and so you, you, you also get this, this peak that Gloucester's not that important of a person it, it, in Lear's mind, at least. Yeah. Um, 
in the hierarchy of the relationships there. So Gloucester and Edmund aren't even there when all of this goes down. Um, and then, and then, and then, Le- and then Lear says, okay, now I'm going to tell you my secret plan. Or I'm going to tell you my darker purpose, which, um, so, okay. So are you asking that in light of what I just said though, about yeah, him not so. being a bad guy, but here he seems to be saying, using, using adjectives that indicate I'm about to do something very, very wicked. Well, I'm, uh-huh. I'm wondering if maybe it's just, and you know, he's, that's why I said you could almost see him saying it to himself. Like he's cluing mm-hmm. in the audience that maybe he doesn't, fully realize what he's doing and what he's saying, but there seems to be something darker here. And I know like blindness, think blindness is a theme in the play, darkness, blindness. Right. Um, I think Tim, you've mentioned that before. Yeah. Um, and so it, this plays into that. Well, what do you make of this line, Tim? Meantime, we should, and what do you think of my idea that that could be said to the audience sort of almost as an aside? And then when he's talking to his people, he's turning to them and saying, give me the map there. Well, I think that would be a, a really bold choice for the director I think that the the plain reading, the plain meaning, I should say, is not darker, like morally suspicious. I think it's simply, I have a secret plan. I am now going to unfold it. So if the director has Lear speak that line, our darker purpose, as an aside to the audience, well, the audience is going to say, Oh my goodness, what is it? Oh my goodness, what is it? He's got a darker plan. And I would think as an audience member that when he reveals who's going to get what part of the kingdom, that that's not really what the secret plan, he's not really revealing the secret plan. The secret plan is going to happen later. So I would not, I would not do that because I think you would have your audience begging to know, okay, what's the real secret plan? Because it wasn't because it's, in doing that, it's he says we're going to express it right now. Yeah, right. So and I think, I think you'd kind of like tell the audience, you and I know that this is not really what my purpose is. Which I don't mm-hmm. think. I don't think that'd be a good reading of the text. I think you'd have a pretty confused audience on your hands. Well, okay, so let's turn to Cordelia then. I mean, we just talked about her a little bit about yeah. how you might read her, but her answer was it wise? I mean, did she answer the right way? Either of you jump in there. Oh man. It's a tough, I mean, no. <laughs> I mean, I think really the, how you answer this question says a lot of how you're going to read the rest of the play. Right. It's, uh-huh. it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. Like if my wife, if my wife came up to me and said, why do you love me? And I said, cause I've promised to, cause of duty. Mm-hmm. Cause I found it. You'd be like, what? My wife would be like, what? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, if yeah. I followed Kant's rules yeah. about, you know, <laughs> yeah. what, love, then, then the only, the, the only love that's truly love is love because of duty mm-hmm. out of a sense of duty. If I told my wife that she would probably, or, or she would be probably pretty annoyed with me. Um, and justifiably so. And justifiably, like I should be able and willing to say that I love you because you're beautiful and you're smart and you're funny and you I like make spending beautiful time with babies you and, and mm-hmm. I like spending time with you. You make the days go easy. Um, whatever, you know, all those things. And then, and then, you know, I love you so much. I would die for you and whatever. Right. Um, this is where, this is where it proves that it's not a romance. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> the understanding of love is a little bit weird. And Cordelia, who is I, clearly, I think she's supposed, I mean, she, to me, Cordelia is that that side character that represents 
that virtuous character that we can imitate the right path, the right path. But, but just from the human side of it, like trying to enter into, you know, King Lear's, the story and his, and, and be like having a sympathetic emotional um, experience with him, with, with the characters, like there is a sense in which she loves her father. She knows her, her father and she knows that he, what he needs to hear right now. And my wife needs to hear something more than just, I love you because of a vow I made 22 mm-hmm. years ago. She needs to, she needs to hear that I love her because she's beautiful Yeah, or whatever. So you, so you right? can empathize with the human part of what he, he, what he feels when he hears what she says. What Cordelia yeah, says. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Like you understand that. Yeah. And Cordelia is so, being Kantian so, at this point so for no reason. Cordelia is being <laughs> truthful, but not, she's not tapping into like the human side of things. Okay. Let me, right. can I, Dave, um, you want to counter that? If he's, well, if she's not a Kantian character driven by this like deontological system of ethics, and she's actually <laughs> say that deeply, sentence again a bunch of times. <laughs> and, and she's she has deep affection for her father, which I think there's textual evidence to support that. Yeah. Well then why does she respond the way that she responds? Like in other words, if she's not a stoic, why why these words? So, I mean, does the answer depend on how we read her? Do we read her if, if either as a stoic or as this person who's, you know, saddened by her inability uh-huh, to say, uh-huh. I mean, do we accept that we could accept that she wants to tell him more and she's incapable of it. She cannot heave her heart up into her mouth. Not, she will not heave her heart up into her mouth. She's just, she, it's, she lacks a skill. She's poetically but, incapable. Yeah, of see, right. got, this is kind of getting at why in some ways I read her, like she doesn't have, she thinks that what's happening here is silly. And she's not going to, like, she respects him as a person, but recognizes that he is maybe, like, I think you could say that maybe here she's recognizing the trajectory of his Yeah, but my wife would slap me if I said that, if I did that to her. Yeah, I was like, well, you're being silly, so I'm not going to answer your question. Right. So, so I'm not saying that his, his response is um, not like that. He's the way he responds to her is completely wrong. But I think her response at the same time is she's recognizing um, the tr- where his mind is going, and she's saying, and she's saying, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna honor the nonsense that you're yeah. putting out here. I, like I've got too much respect for you to to say that this is really you putting this question forward. Yeah. Or or she also knows that there are two men standing in wait that she doesn't want. <laughs> and well, if she says, "I love you more than anybody." then which of those two men would be willing to marry her? Right. So she's being pragmatic. Right. She might be being very pragmatic. I can't tell you what you want to Like Goneril and Reagan can because they're already married. Oh, right. But I can't tell you that and I love you more than any future husband. And because their husbands want right the power here. too. <laughs> yeah. So for her, she's like, this is a rock and a hard place you put me in. What do you want me to do? Could be, yeah. Huh. Or... And all this stuff is stuff we can think or about. Or the most we're... virtuous reading is that she <laughs> actually is a very virtuous lady who has a sense of duty and a sense of, of love for propriety and propriety. And she's responding with great propriety. And that's my normal reading, but I'm, you know, if I'm trying to think through. Yeah. Different options, different options. And the, just the way the different characters might feel emotionally in the situation. But this is the beauty of Shakespeare, right? Like Absolutely. any of these, we can look at any of these and there's a justifiable case to be made, at least within the context of the scene. Obviously we're going to keep reading and see, see where we see where it goes and i think that the i think the best way to read ophelia is that it is a sense of not ophelia cordelia cordelia 
is that it it's is a very different the, character. Oh yeah. She's responding she that she perhaps lacks the skill to respond appropriately, that she's more gifted at love, which we all should be um, more gifted at love than we are in rhetoric. So that's, she says, part of the problem. But I also think that um, she is a character of propriety, especially because the two speeches from her sisters that have come before are so full of impropriety, not impropriety, like sexual impropriety. Um, they just are outlandish and ridiculous. I, I kind of think they're it'd be pandering. worth a bit of it. They're, but, but they're pandering in a way that is, um, it's bizarrely inflated. Uh, give me a second, because I just think- Yeah, it's line 55 is Goneril, and Reagan is line 69. Great. Um, and I'm fascinated by the fact that these are both their first two lines, like their first lines of the play. Yes. Hmm. I'm, I'm always very interested by the first time someone says in a play, especially like a key character. I don't know. So Goneril, I will meet them responding to Lear's desire to know who loves him best. Goneril, sir, I do love you more than words can wield the matter dearer than eyesight space or Liberty beyond what could be valued rich or rare, sir, a son for her cradle ere she had a husband for her bed. I mean, what? I mean, it's so. She Wait, what? Loves what? Me. What? 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 I think, she I loves think that's more than eyesight, space, and liberty. Didn't that? Where's the bed part? Oh, we're that might reading, be an example from a different text. Oh, okay. read yours again. After the liberty part. Oh, hold on. Um, sir, I do love you more than words can wield the matter dearer than eyesight, space, or liberty beyond which can be valued rich or rare. Now this is really strange because in my copy, the next I jump a column and it says, sir, a son for her cradle, but that doesn't make much sense. That seems like a real, yeah, that's not in ours. Oh, 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 here we go. David, can we take this out so I can just read the whole thing properly? I didn't realize <laughs> this Penguin Classic has put them side by side, the folio and the cordo. Oh, okay. Uh, so here I go again. Uh, Goneril responding to Lear, who loves me best. Goneril says, sir, I do love you more than words can wield the matter, dearer than eyesight, space, or liberty, beyond what can be valued rich or rare, no less than life with grace, health, beauty, honor, as much as child heir loved or father friend, a love that makes breath poor and speech unable beyond all manner of so much. I love you. It's, I love that. It's sorry. She's saying that she loves him more than eyesight, space or liberty, which is <laughs> not even like things or reaching she's she's like i there i love you more than any words could possibly say and then she just lists a bunch of words i know, I know right i think <laughs> i th i mean when i when i see lear i mean i kind of already know what gonorrhea is going to be like but when i hear these opening lines from gonorrhea i'm like oh she is willing to say not only is she willing to say anything but her choice of words is so beyond the pale of what that relationship should be like it's so kind of like beyond nature. It's such like, it seems to me like a violation of nature. And we can talk about what nature means later. Um, 
that I think the audience hears gonorrhea and they're just like, Oh my gosh, who she is. She's willing to say anything to get her hands on land. This has nothing to do with her affection for Lear. Mm. And so in, by contrast, Cordelia can only, she can only barely speak. Why? Because she says, my love's richer than my tongue. Or in another translation, my love's more ponderous than my tongue. Translation. Uh, edition. Oh. And then there's Reagan. Matt, you want to read Reagan? Yeah. Yeah. I am, I am, or so now Reagan responding to Lear's question, how much do you love me? I am made of that self-metal as my sister and prize me at her worth. In my true heart, I find she names my very deed of love. Only she comes too short. <laughs> that I profess, profess myself an enemy to all other joys, which the most precious square of sense possesses, and find I am alone felicited, felicited in your dear highness love. So, so basically she's saying, I love you. All those things are true of me too, but all the things that she says she loves you more than, I love you more than them, and, I, and now I hate them. Uh-huh. She still loves those things. I hate them. Right? I, also I saying, said it's an I, enemy to me. I made, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then she's saying, but also, oh, I'm also made. I love the fact that you love me. That's the end part there, right? Oh yeah. I find I am alone, felicited in your dear highness love. So I'm a, I'm alone, made happy by your by your dear highness love. Is that how would you read that part? It seems to me that she's saying something like it's at line seventy five and seventy six. I'm alone made happy in your dear highness love. Yeah. So she's only happy when she has his love. She's like turning it. She's giving him more agency to him there, yeah. which is interesting because Lear, after she speaks, after Goneril speaks, Lear then, before he even turns to Reagan, he gives her Goneril a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So it's almost like Reagan's like, oh, okay, that worked. I'm just going to do the same thing and pile on. Right. And then, and then he just, he doesn't, it's not like Lear waits to hear them all speak and then gives them stuff. He hears Goneril speak and gives her something. And then he hears Reagan speak and he gives her something. And then he turns to Cordelia. And she's like, meh, I'm good. That, see, that's why I think this whole thing was a hoop jumping contest. I don't, I think, by I think Lear. he already, yeah, by Leary. I think he already knew what portion Goneril was going to get. He already knew what portion Reagan was going to get. And he already knew that the remaining portion was going to be, be Cordelia's and it was going to be the largest. So he's testing her. So he makes no, there, there's no changes here. I, I'm not even sure he real, he thought he was testing her. I thought he, I think that he went into it assuming that he would get here what he wanted to hear, that, that, that he would get so these particular answers. It's just, answers. The, it's just and um, this was more of just of a display of a display, like, like, um, well, I hate to make this comparison because he's a bad guy, but, um, <laughs> but like in, in the, in the book of Esther where the King is, um, parading his wife around, I can't remember her name, the first queen before mm-hmm. Esther, before Esther becomes his queen and he's, and he's parading her around. Like, it's almost like that. Like he's putting the, he's putting them on display, Yeah. but he knows that Cordelia is because Cordelia is his favorite and he knows that she's going to love him the most. He, he knows that she's going to get the most. And so he, he doesn't even have to worry about how to, how he's going to divvy it up until Cordelia surprises him and doesn't give the answer that he's expecting. And then he has to, he has to take her share, the largest share probably, and then divide it into two and pass it off to, and, you know, split it between the other two. Hmm. Okay. So following this, um, Burgundy's like, just because for time here, Burgundy's like, I'm good. I don't yeah. want to marry her now. She speaks her mind a little too much. No dowry. I'm, I'll 
piece. Uh, then the King of France is like, oh, huh, she seems not, she seems, I like that she speaks her mind. I'll take her off your hands. And then Kent jumps in to defend uh, King, the way Lear responds and then gets banished. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how. Yeah, so, there's, a, there's a note there, a point there though, because this is fascinating to me. So Lear does this whole thing. Then, and Cordelia tries to explain that he's not, this is not right. Yeah. Then Lear, or sorry, Kent steps in and says, this is not right. You should not be dividing up your kingdom yet. And you shouldn't be doing it in this way. And, and both Cordelia and Lear and Kent get banished from Britain. Then a couple or, you know, a couple scenes later, the fool comes in, says all the exact same stuff. Yeah. And the king said, does nothing about okay, it. Okay. So I have a proposal to make. We're going on, it's like an hour and 20 minutes of show right now. And we did some of that remedial, like some of the previewing Lear stuff, but for about 30 minutes at the beginning. So what if we were to take a pause here and make this first episode, act one, scene one, and then finish act one in a second episode? I think that's a really good idea. Because I think that way, because yeah. I think we need to do a good job on act one. I think the future acts, we won't have as much stuff at the beginning we can dive right in so let's pause here and let's finish our conversation on act one um the next time and we'll try to go 45 minutes or whatever whenever we get a chance david can i cut you finish no go ahead go ahead um this i think i there's a word that shows up with great frequency in this play and it's the word nature and and that's really why I want nice. to yeah. focus on scene two. Yeah, because mm-hmm. scene two, Edmund, the bastard son of Gloucester, who is a I bad know. guy, um, he calls himself kind of like the um, in allegiance with goddess nature. I can't remember the yeah, exact to, to that law, my services are bound. Yes. It's line act two, act one, scene two, line one. Line one I'm just two. thinking that a lot of our listeners kind of come from the Christian classical tradition. And that word nature is held up as something to be esteemed. It's, you know, we read Hamlet say, hold up a mirror to nature. And we say, ah, and nature's good. That's a good thing to hold up a mirror to nature. So it's very peculiar and potentially kind of confusing to hear Edmund, who we know really early on is a bad guy intent on destruction, to hear him say, Thou, nature, art my goddess, to thy law my services are bound. So I'm mentioning this because I think it would be helpful to listeners to try to get a to try to understand what Shakespeare means by nature. Um, and it is not simple. And then another complexity to that is Shakespeare puts plenty of wonderful words in just dastardly characters' mouths. Hmm. So Going forward, I think the three of us would, it would behoove us well to try to understand how Shakespeare is using the concept of nature. I don't mean nature, the outside world, but the concept of nature. What does it mean? And what does he hope that we understand? Hmm. Yeah. And, and along those lines, because um, by the time we get to, to scene two, we are also aware, we have also been made aware of the fact that this play or that this kingdom exists in a pre-Christian time, right? He's, they make appeals to, um, 
pagan Apollo, deities, Hera, mm-hmm. Jove, or yeah, whatever Jupiter, um, pagan deities. So it. So what does that mean as well for the text that you have a Christian writing a play to a Christian audience, but the play is set in a pagan setting. Um, and so how does, what does that mean as well? in in light of, you know, all of these, all of, all of the stuff that's happening and, and these encounters with ideas like nature and stuff. So, yeah, it's kind of a common so problem to the one that those readers that are familiar with Beowulf are encountering, like, okay, this seems to be a Christian author speaking into a Christianized, but still kind of, uh, pagan culture there's a lot of like pagan, pagan influence yeah so there's the, there's this kind of like very tricky hermeneutical question of like well what do you do with that how do you make sense of how do you make sense of that kind of mashup between paganism and christianity hmm. yeah i love this i think um those are some great things we're gonna have to dive into and i wanted to give scene two and then the stuff with the fool i don't want to give it too little time. So I think we, that'll give us a chance to focus on it at least for half hour, 45 minutes before we go though. I want to talk about one idea that I think will be able to help guide us in a lot of these Shakespeare shows. There's a kind of a, what Tim would call kind of a technical term that Matt, you and I talk about, we talk about around here when we talk about books, it's this idea of what we call a necessary question. If you've used our elevator or odyssey guides, you'll have seen them before. And I think that Matt, can you just give a one sentence summary of what a necessary question is, because what I'd love for people to be able to do is as they're reading and thinking about act one, um, to be able to think about what maybe the necessary question for King, what Shakespeare is suggesting as the necessary question for King Lear might be. Yeah. But the way, the way we use the necessary question in, in our reading guides or literature guides and, and here, I guess, is what is, what is the, what is some, some concrete act or decision that is made in the play that that is the necessary question with regards to, you know, should he do it? Should he not do it? Um, should he have done it or, or have not done it? Um, and then, and then that question seems to be continually getting answered as you progress through the play, it's continually getting answered or, or more information is being added to the question to help us so the question it. keeps coming back because something happens because of the decision that was made or whatever. Right, we get new information that yeah. affects our decision. The, the The question itself is 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 rarely ever actually answered by the author, but it's but it's this question that that as you're asking it, as you're reading through the play or the story, and 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 asking it, it then gives rise to these bigger ideas and these bigger questions that might come up. Like I mentioned at the beginning, that you know this this um you know, King Lear is, is raises questions about family, you know, father, daughter relationships, parent, child relationships. Um, so there, this is this kind of bigger idea, but, but identifying that necessary question and trying to answer that as I'm reading through the text would, would raise my mind in my mind, this other, these bigger questions, bigger idea questions, more abstract questions. Yeah. So it should be something concrete, essentially mm-hmm. concrete that, that can bring, give rise to the abstract ideas, yeah, to the yeah, abstract themes. Right. So can I ask a clarifying question? If, yeah, I just saw the movie, uh, The Incredibles, on the plane back from Colorado, which I had never seen before, which was fantastic. I <laughs> What a movie. It was so good. Um, <laughs> what is the, what is the one? necessary question? One. 
what's the necessary question of the Incredibles? I just assume you guys have seen oh, it. I have not seen that in, lo- in the while, so I can't even yeah, remember. It. It's been so long, I have no idea. But like, um, you know, we, sorry, man. So, like, for example, Casablanca. Let's let's talk Casablanca. Yeah, right. like, that's one people have seen. You could say that you could argue that the necessary question is: uh, Should Rick help Ilsa and her husband? Should he should he yeah, put his okay. neck on the line to help them escape? So that's yeah. a very practical, specific question that's going to affect the out, like what eventually happens to him. But it's also a question that's going to give rise to discussions about things like um, justice and injustice. Uh, question, you know, things abstract ideas um, mm-hmm. that relate to the story. So you don't have you can ask that specific question as a gateway into some other more abstract ideas. Right. So then. Um, so, so, uh, in, 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 um, Othello, you know, should, should Othello go along with listen Iago? To Iago. Trust, listen yeah. to Iago, yeah. right? Yeah. Should Hamlet trust the ghost or believe the ghost? And at the so beginning, it's, it's we have a, a certain question of, of, it's like a, it's like a question about the main character's decisions and actions from those decisions. Mm-hmm. And as we see more of the effects of the decisions that they made, you can start out you, the the way yeah. you think about the question begins to evolve, and it opens up new new abstract yeah. ideas, new abstract themes to be talked about. And there, I mean, you Got can. It. I, so so it's a framework for discussion, and basically, the question can be asked of mm-hmm, any mm-hmm. A, a question like this can be asked of any decision that's ever made in the story. But there's this one that that we kind of think of as the necessary question, which is that main one that you know that the author is building the whole story around. That seems to be of the that seems to be the one that is most interesting to the author in some right. ways, I think is, yeah, it's the one that the author seems to be the most it's concerned about. It has, it lingers the longest, it twists and turns as you twist and turn through the story. It still seems to be there. So right, one thing, right. it's one of those things where right now we're just saying, let's look out for it. Let's try to figure out what is possibly Shakespeare saying is the necessary question of Lear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying right now at the end of act one, scene one, we should know, but it's, it's just something that's worth looking out for and um, is worth, um, potentially providing a context for some conversation. Yeah. yeah. And if you're a teacher or someone who just likes, you know, you have a book club or whatever, it's, it's a great way to um, focus your conversation. Um, especially with the younger, you know, say your, your high school students, middle school and high school students, because you're starting with the concrete and then you're going to the abstract. Right. A better way of approaching things with kids who are, you know, many kids are not necessarily going to, be inclined to start with the abstract and stay there. Yeah. <laughs> They're not capable it, of it. For teachers and, and parents, I guess, just as a side kind of note that, that younger kids like junior high kids, but also high school kids, perhaps on their first read, the, the necessary question, like kind of that main one might be difficult to find. Um, and so, you know, having them practice on just asking the question about any event or, or decision can, can be a helpful starting point, but then as they get older and more, more experienced with stories and that, and then especially as they're rereading stories, uh, you know, on the second and third or fourth time, finding that necessary question becomes easier and easier. Mm. So this so, strikes so me, is it right or wrong, but be careful with that, I guess. As you guys explain it, it strikes me of th- this is, could be a really helpful thing to pursue in class because as soon as you ask the question, David, um, what's the necessary question of the play? So I start thinking about, well, you know, maybe it's something like Lear wants to divide his kingdom peacefully. But as soon as, if I'm imagining myself as a student in the class, the moment that I say that, 
Then another student says, but that's not what it's really about. It's about his broken relationship with Cordelia. You know what I mean? So, mm, um, yeah. so it's, it's an opportunity. It seems to me like that's a great way to get the students invested in what, what is really happening here? What's really going on here? Yeah. You know, like one great place that you see it, um, is in one really obvious way is the, the novel Huckleberry Finn, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, because the big question is, you know, one maybe the necessary question is, should Jim, I mean, should Huck turn Jim in or help him get, go free? And so on the surface, you know, you might say it, it might seem obvious what the answer to that question is, but in discussing it, it forces kids to think outside their own perspectives and to ask new questions and to mm-hmm. say, well, is the, well, no, it's just a book about adventure or whatever, you know, it forces the kid who thought, you know, maybe that they were just reading it and they were just enjoying the adventure to think more deeply about it too. So, well, you asked the question, you know, should Cordelia have responded the way she did? And I mean, even there, like Tim and I, or Tim, you and I both had initial kind of gut reactions, right? Mm-hmm, but then mm-hmm. as we're discussing, it's like, well, but was she thinking about this or was this yeah. influencing? You know, was yeah. she, was she being pragmatic because there were suitors standing there yeah, um, right. Yeah, yeah. or right outside the door or whatever, you know, it takes and, you into, you have to think not just about how you think about it, but how the characters think about yeah, it. Like you just right. be somebody else for a while. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. And, you which know, is, which yeah. is and, one of the large points of literature. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right, Matt, final thought, and then we got to go. Yeah. I cut you uh, off, Matt. No, no, I don't have a final thought, but apparently there's an eavesdropper in on the podcast booth and somebody had slipped a note underneath the door, <laughs> which note reads, um, T.S. Eliot liked Hamlet. He thought it failed as a work of art because it tried the impossible. So apparently our eavesdropper overheard David say <laughs> that maybe that's why T.S. Eliot didn't like Hamlet way earlier in the show. Which was, and then we get a note slide slid under the door. So. Yeah. So, so Brian Phillips, I Brian Phillips, there's no way. Wait, that was Andrew Kern. I didn't know that Brian <laughs> yeah, that, was. He, yeah, he, he would never do that. <laughs> All right. Well, gentlemen, thanks to both of you. We went a little long, but I think this is, you know, is our first episode. We we're trying to do some groundwork and things like that. But thank you for your insights and for your time. I, I really enjoyed this. And I think this discussion on Lear is going to be interesting and edifying. Yeah. Is that overstating it? it? It's better than eyesight, personally. <laughs> <laughs> it's, better than space space it. <laughs> it's better than space and liberty. Better than space and liberty. All right. Well, uh, this has been an episode of this has been the very first episode of the plays the thing for Matt Bianco, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern. Thanks so much for uh, listening and happy reading. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.